Hello, everyone. Good morning. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors at Hiawatha. And as uh, Ellen said earlier, and Peter, welcome to our, uh, one of our virtual gatherings. If you're family or friends of people maybe that uh, attend normally, uh, especially to those of you who want to say welcome. But to all of you, it's good to see you virtually, uh, as always, on Sunday. Uh, we are going to, just a quick announcement, we are going to try something different today after the sermon. We are going to have a question and answer time. Our services are a little bit shorter when they're online like this, and so we're kind of afforded the opportunity to try this. We've been wanting to try to weave that into services uh, for years, actually, but it's just kind of hard to squeeze it in on Sundays. We're going to try it today. And so if you have a question that comes up during the sermon about the sermon passage, uh, about Psalm 46, which is today's sermon passage, or something that kind of relates to it, you can send it to SQ for sermon questions, sq at hiawathachurch.com. And that will, and we'll handle them all anonymously in case you're wondering. But Spencer, the other pastor here, one of our pastors, will field the questions and send me a few afterwards, and we'll just see how it goes. Uh, so if you'd like to do that, that would be great. Anonym, we'll handle them anonymously, but send it into sq at hiawathachurch.com. Or if you know Spencer personally and have his cell phone, you could text him, I guess. Uh, and that would be fine as well. All right, so we are going to dive right into a new series in the book of Psalms, five weeks on some select psalms. It'll take us right up to Memorial Day weekend. And then after that, uh, if you're wondering where we're going, we're going to have a sermon series in the book of Ruth. And so that'll be a really fun series for us as well. Six weeks in Ruth that will take us all the way through June. Uh, but for five weeks, we'll be in the book of Psalms. Today is Psalm 46, uh, the sermon I'm titling the sermon, Be Still and Know That Jesus is God. Uh, but a quick crash course on the psalms. The psalms, if you don't know much about them, are just kind of by way of reminder, They are one of the five wisdom books of the Old Testament. They are a collection of what are essentially prophetic songs written between 1400 B.C. and most of them around 1000 B.C., primarily by David, though there are a number of authors. But when I say prophetic songs, I mean they're songs that, like everything else in the Old Testament, point beyond themselves to Jesus Christ. Gerald H. Wilson says about the Psalms, in the Christian New Testament, No book is cited more often as a warrant for understanding the life of Jesus than the book of Psalms. I think that's really helpful and really important for us to understand about a book that we can tend to read ourselves or our circumstances into maybe more than we should. And so, just in short, when you read the Psalms, when I read this Psalm today, but when you read the Psalms just in life or with your friends or family or community groups, Look for Jesus when you read the Psalms. That's, if you hear nothing else uh, in this introduction than that, hear this. Look for Jesus when you read the Psalms, and you will read them biblically. Because this is how Jesus reads the Psalms. This is how the New Testament authors read the Psalms. It's his songbook. The words belong to him, even though they were written a thousand years before he was born. All right, so let's read from Psalm 46. Turn in a Bible or a phone app if you have Uh, one in front of you, or I encourage you to pick it up. I'm not going to jump around too much today, so if you have Psalm 46, and I think Spencer will will paste it into uh, the feed as well if you're on Facebook. Uh, But Psalm 46, 1 to 11. In fact, let me read from verse 0 to begin in a couple of comments on this. Psalm 46 uh, is kind of uh, subtitled or explained in verse 0 when it says, To the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. So the sons of Korah were Levites or priests that David instructed to write music when he was king. Alamoth, uh, we don't know exactly what it means, but it might refer to a certain type of melody. And then later in the psalm, when I say the word selah, 
which comes up a lot in the Psalms. We don't know exactly what that means either. There's different options, but it might just mean pause or it might be an exclamation of uh, amen or forever. May this be the case. I I tend to think it's more of a musical uh, term, meaning stop, pause, think about what you just read. Uh, Certainly in Psalm 46, it kind of um, breaks down the psalm in its three sections pretty neatly. And so, uh, at least here, it seems to be what it means, but um, don't get too hung up on it. All right, verse 1. Here we go. Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Come, Behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. All right, a couple observations here uh, generally before we dive in. Um, Psalm 46 is just a wonderful little psalm. It it is a source of a number of worship songs, uh, some of which that we've sung at Hiawatha, actually. Our kids sing in Cogsworks. Others of you maybe have sung before, yet others you may have heard of, like Martin Luther's uh, famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Uh, But I've also read this psalm at funerals before on multiple occasions. And so I think this is a psalm that hits on the full range of human emotions in a lot of ways. On a personal note, my wife inscribed Psalm 4610 on my wedding ring before we got married. And so, so again, I know for a lot of us this psalm is either familiar or maybe something that just means something to us very personally. But let's try to look at it with fresh eyes today. Some of you have never read it before and that's great as well. But let's try to look at it with fresh eyes today. It is a psalm, if you were just to summarize it just after a quick kind of surfacey reading, it is a psalm primarily about God's presence with us. Verse 1 says, God is our refuge. He is a present help in trouble. Verse 5 says, God is in the midst of this city. Verses 7 and 11 say, the Lord of hosts is with us. And there's some inclusio in the psalm as well, which essentially means bracketing with the same theme for emphasis. And so in this case, the psalm begins with, our God is our refuge, and it ends with, God is our fortress. It's saying the same thing, just a little bit differently. But this is part of the point of the psalm, that we might know God today, that we might know this truth, that he is our strength, he's our fortress, he is our dwelling place, in a sense. God is our refuge. God's our fortress Not vaccines, not job security, not money, not political leaders, not our good works, but God himself is our fortress. God himself is our answer. There's a lot of grace in that. More on that later, though. 
Also notice that God is with us, it says, as a fortress in dark places. So when it says that the earth is giving way and the mountains are being thrown into the sea and that entire kingdoms are tottering and ready to crumble, those are cataclysmic events. And you might think, oh, but it's just poetry. Of course it is. But, but the point is to say God is with us in the worst of events, the worst of times, the worst and most dangerous of places on the planet, the most threatening of sicknesses. And we can tend to think when bad things happen, where is God in the midst of the bad thing? Why is this happening? But the Bible actually says he's present, maybe even especially present, strangely, in dark places. Somehow, he's there with us, giving us his stability and protection, even though the earth is literally giving way all around us. So maybe you see and feel the tension in those things. There's supposed to be a bit of a tension there. And we'll start to resolve that tension shortly, but hold on to that for now. All right, last comment here from the 30,000-foot view, and then we'll dig a little bit deeper. But if you look at the three main sections of the Psalms divided by the Selahs, even though there are a lot of common themes that are strewn throughout, there is movement in the Psalm from one, everything's falling apart, to two, look, there's a river in the city that's making us happy and glad. To three, look what God is doing. Behold the works of God. And so in other words, there's a problem, there's a sign of hope, and then there is a full-blown solution and an invitation to be still before the solution and to look at it and to behold it. And that leads me to this next section here, which I'll, I'll raise with a question and begin with a question. And that is, how is Psalm 46 forward-looking? How is it prophetic? How is it anticipating the future? And let me start by saying that, that what is vague here in this psalm, Christ makes clear. He is a master of granting clarity to otherwise foggy passages. And not just the man Christ, but his gospel, the good news of his death and resurrection. He is the one who grants clarity to otherwise veiled and foggy passages. He is, in a sense, the claritin to the allergies of the Old Testament. Here's what I mean. Let's look at this thematically and start with the city of God. So in, in the first sense, in the Old Testament, the city of God was a city. It was Jerusalem. But, but as history progressed, it became clear that the true city of God was his people. It was his church. In Galatians 4, it says about Christians, Jews and non-Jews or Gentiles, who believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, it says, you are, Christian, the Jerusalem from above. You are the true city that he cherishes and that he dwells in. That's amazing in and of itself, isn't it? But here back in the Old Testament, when things are still a bit veiled and foggy, when it says that his city is his habitation, when we read the psalm in its most fulfilled sense in Christ, what that means is we are his habitation. We are where he is. His spirit resides in us. And that might be kind of obvious on one level to some of us who have heard this before, who are privy to these things, but it's not always a given that we think this way, right? For Christians, God is not just around us or 
near to us. He's in us, and we're in him. It's not Jesus' teachings or advice or some idea that's inside of us, but Jesus himself who lives within us. In John 17, 23, it says, when Jesus as God the Son is praying to God the Father, Jesus says, Father, I in them, or he's saying, I am in my people, I'm in my disciples, I'm in Christians. He's saying, Father, I in them and you in me. May they be brought together in perfect unity. And he continues to pray for us in that regard. It's beautiful. And again, in Galatians 4, we are the city. So here's kind of the, the big so what here. God is able to call us a city in general, but, but more than that, he is able to live in sinners like us because of Jesus. No more barriers between us because the storm of our sin has been quelled. It's not a barrier or a veil anymore. And let me ask you this question about the psalm, but about theology in general. Is there anything more cataclysmic than our sin? See how this affects how maybe we read a psalm like this? Are psalms like this about a bad day at work or a difficult day of parenting? Or are they about the fact that you and I have committed cosmic treason against the God of the universe who made us and who loves us? We've spit in his face and we have only hell to look forward to. See, our sin is the global superstorm. So, so how then, it raises the, the question, right? It's a problem. And so then when we, when we read a psalm like this and we ask, how then can God dwell among it and among or in even us? The answer is only Jesus. He's the, he's the solution. He's the mediator that allows for this type of intimate closeness with God. Similarly, when it says in the psalm, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. That might seem a little bit out of place to you or at least vague, and it kind of is at this point, until we complete the vision with Jesus, who is called the Lamb, who is said in Revelation to sit on a throne in the new earth that sources the river of life. In other words, here in Psalm 46, a river makes glad the city, the city of God, which again is us. But later we see the river start to take shape into something more specific. And we see that life itself, eternal life, flows from Jesus's, not just Jesus, but Jesus's lamb-like sacrificial atonement. In Revelation 22.1, uh, you, you start to see this, but it, it takes shape elsewhere as well. But the end of the book, this is what is true now, but we have to look forward to forever in the eternal heavenly city when it comes down from heaven and establishes itself here. When essentially we get to be with Jesus forever on a perfected earth in perfect bodies. All right, so what, what's beginning to take shape in Psalm 46 really becomes clear later in the storyline. And it's important to see that it's Jesus' lamb-like sacrificial atonement that sources the river. In other words, the river is his blood. It's the only hope we have to be happy. It's the only hope we have to be forgiven. It's the only hope we have to be glad, as the psalm says. It's the only hope we have to be saved. 
And so the river in the city starts to resolve this tension of how God can dwell among and in us. The answer is, Jesus died for us. That's how. All right, second angle here, and we talk about how is this psalm forward-looking. I want to look at verse 2 for a little bit, which says, Mountains will be taken up and thrown into the heart of the sea. All right, so I know that maybe uh, many of you are, are new to the Bible or maybe this, this concept, but let, let me just say, the image of mountains being thrown into oceans comes up more than once in the Bible, more than you might expect. Most notably in Mark 11. In Mark eleven twenty three, this is one of the gospel accounts in the New Testament that tells us the story of, of Jesus, culminating with his death and resurrection. But in Mark eleven twenty three, Jesus says just a few days before his death, when he's in Jerusalem, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will be done for him. So almost word for word with Psalm 46. Now Jesus here is referring not just to any like figurative mountain. He's not just saying, if you believe, uh, then big things will be done for you. He's saying, this mountain. He's pointing to the mountain that they're at, which is the mountain that Jerusalem and the temple sit on. And in context, we know, this is in context if you've read the story with Jesus cursing the fig tree and so forth, but so in, in context, Jesus is cursing the Old Testament, the old system that the temple represented. It was a system or covenant of the works of human hands working their way towards God uh, on merit, on commandment keeping, on law observance. It was a system of works. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's predicting the downfall of the old system in the wake of his impending death, which would establish itself a New Testament built on the works of God's hands, not ours. Revelation 8.8 also has this imagery in it symbolically of mountains being thrown into the sea. And what it means there is now, present day, wherever the gospel of Jesus' bloody death and triumphant resurrection are preached, the mountain of the law is being destroyed. No more mediation with the works of our hands. The cross does away with it. It doesn't allow for it. It's not blended with it. When the gospel's preached, the mountains of the law are thrown into the ocean, into the deepest part of it. And so no more mediation by the works of our hands, only by the river of Jesus' blood. Verse 10 gets at this idea as well. Back in the psalm, Psalm 46.10 highlights this with these simple but beautiful words. Be still. And this is actually a part of the psalm where God starts to speak. Maybe you notice that, but most of it is the sons of Asaph writing about God. But in this one part, this is where God himself talks, about, talks right to us. It says, be still. It's an invitation. Be still and know that I am God. So again, contrast this with the Old Testament's call to do the law, keep the commandments, and then you will live from Leviticus 18.5. And you can see the difference. Be still, God says. In other words, don't move. And it's hard to actively do good when you're being still, right? But God says that anyway. Be still, 
don't move and simply know that God is your strength. In other words, that you have no spiritual strength. And that even when you are strong, it's not yours. It's God in you who's exerting his strength through you. All right, so here's why all this is important when it comes to Psalm 46's greater theme of the presence of God. And that is, this, everything we're saying here, is precisely what allows for God's true presence in your life. In other words, it's what allows for salvation. And that is the upheaval of the old system built on works, and in the place of it, grace. Think about it. If calamity is best understood as our sin, as the Bible makes resoundingly clear, then the best answer to that God can give us, to that impossible predicament that we're in, is not asking us to climb the mountain of try-harder, but the destruction of that mountain. And in its wake, the call to be still and, quote, Behold the works of the Lord. Behold his works. Behold what he's doing when he's moving to save us as we're just still watching it, receiving it. See, this image of mountains being thrown into the sea while awful is really good news when you understand it through the lens of Christ. The Bible essentially starts early on with the message You need to, after sin comes into the world, so addressing sinners who are far from God, it starts with the message of, you need to ascend this mountain to draw near to God. You must do it. You must climb. You must exert yourself. You must be and do good perfectly. You must purify yourself. You must ascend the face of the cliff. The Psalms even raise this question in Psalm 24. I don't have the verse. It's Psalm 24 somewhere. But it it raises the question, who will ascend the hill of the Lord? Who will do it? And the implied answer there is, no one. No one can. So we, we start with all of that. The Bible starts with those types of questions, but then it moves to, even in the Old Testament, this day is... It's being longed for and prophetically sung ahead of time. But it moves to God taking that mountain, which no one was ever able to climb, plucking it from the heart of the earth and throwing it into the deepest part of the ocean. And in its wake, the answer and what we're left with is simply and alone Jesus. But in a very particular light, and I want to just pause and take a little bit of a scenic route here, because Jesus is not, the psalm itself is not just showing us Christ, it's showing him in a very particular light. In the wake of that mountain, the mountain of the law, the mountain of you must climb, you must approach, you must do, that being plucked and thrown and judged and cursed. In the wake of that we have Christ, but in a particular light. And so the third theme I want to look at today, and final, is the theme of desolations. Let me read verses 8 and 9 again for you. The invitation is, Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. 
He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. So verse 9 is, well, verse 8 is, a, is an invitation to look at the works of the Lord. Verse 9 is a, simply a picture of God ending wars. He's making wars stop all over the earth, breaking bows so they can't be used to harm people anymore, shattering spears for the same reason, burning chariots for the same reason. All right, so we've already been kind of seeing this a little bit, so you might know where I'm going, but let me just drive it home. And again, hear this with fresh eyes. Desolations here are bad news without Christ, but with him, actually, they're great news. Jesus, from the beginning of his ministry in the New Testament, spent much time in desolate places alone, as a castaway, essentially. And there was a reason for this. Jesus' ministry itself, before he died, so between his birth and when he prays in Gethsemane, before he's arrested, all of that is prophetic, like Psalm 46, but maybe in a more direct light. It's prophetic in its own right. He's looking ahead with his words and actions to his death, which is his true mission. And so being in a desolate place had intention to it. His ministry was forward-pointing. Being a castaway, being a cast-out, being placed in, in places of desolation, right? So if we're to ask the question, what are the desolations on the earth that Psalm 46 is ultimately prophetically referring to, the answer is his desolation, Jesus' desolation, his death, which Jesus himself calls the abomination of desolation in the Gospel of Count. Jesus calls his death before it happens, knowing it's coming. He calls his death the abomination of desolation. Or some of your translations say the des- a desolating sacrilege. And so see, when we read the Bible in Psalm 46, desolations are not just vague, undefined judgments against our petty problems. Rather, in the case of Christ, He is made desolate for us, for you and me. He is made desolate for sinners. His cross is the sacrilege. His cross is the desolation. His abominable death, where he takes on the desolation of Psalm 46, which is our sin, and his holiness is stained at the highest level for you and me. Textbook substitution. This is the ultimate desolation that God brought upon the earth. And maybe you didn't know this before, but if not, well, for all of you, Christian or not, let me just say, this is the desolation. And the way that God can bring desolations on the earth that benefit us and don't crush us is because of Jesus. He absorbed it for us. God brought desolation upon his son for you. He loves you that much. He brought desolation upon Jesus so that you would be saved. And so that the wars between us and him, this is what verse 9 is getting at, when God ultimately ends wars, what the Bible talks about is he's ending wars between us and him. Us, enemies of God, who have the bow broken, as if 
Christ himself was being broken, and when that was happening, all of our weapons were being splintered and broken in two and burned with fire. And again, in the wake of Christ's death, we have reconciliation with God. No more war, no more battle, no more enmity. That's what the psalm's looking forward to. Isn't it amazing news that God brought desolation? And it's not just God bringing desolation upon his son, it's Jesus' own willingness to take on that desolation. He knew it was coming. He called it a desolation, an abomination of desolation or a desolating sacrilege. Christ's, as God the Son, his own willingness to take on that desolation for us. And it's really that willingness and that fact, that fulfillment that makes sense of this psalm. It resolves the tensions. It answers the questions. It specifies the generalities and ultimately makes the invitation to behold him all the sweeter. Let me close by reading um, Psalm 46 back to you in New Testament language, and then, then I'll pray. And then if you have questions, uh, we'd love to field a few um, if, uh, if that would be, um, if you have questions. All right, so let me read Psalm 46 back to you in New Testament language, it kind of summarizes where we've been today. Come, behold and survey the wondrous cross, the ultimate saving work of God, how he has thrown the mountain of the law into the sea, how he has brought desolation on his son for us desolate ones, how he has made the war between us and him cease to the end of the earth for all peoples who gladly wash themselves in the river of his blood. And then Jesus' words to us in verses 10 and 11. Jesus says this to us. This is how, it calls out, how he calls out to us in this psalm. Jesus says, Be still and know that I am God. Stare into my empty tomb where I was truly exalted and resurrected from the earth. And know that because of my saving grace, I am with you and my gospel is your fortress even through the darkness to the end of the age. I love you and I am always with you. Selah. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this psalm uh, that it just oozes Christ and good news. Uh, The problems, the tensions it raises are resolved in the perfect obedience and willingness of the Son to go to the cross to die in our place. Uh, Father, teach us these things. We we need this in this this place of of trial and separation and pandemic, uh, but also in our best days and most comfortable days. We need the gospel. The true calamity that's swirling all around us every day is our sin and the fact that we're dead in our sins. Father, so call into our tombs. Speak your promises and your graces over us. Help us to be still and know that you are God and uh, to believe in, to believe in your grace. In Christ we pray, amen.